Hi everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Project Wasta. We're happy you can join us. I'm Amy Fias, a PhD student studying modern Middle East history at UC Santa Barbara. With a professional background in museums and archives and a non-professional background in air guitaring. And I'm Tyler Kinn, a PhD candidate studying the Middle East at Yale's history department and a part-time roller derby referee. This podcast was developed by Amy and I to talk to people with Middle East-related humanities PhDs and ask about their experiences and strategies in the job market. Basically asking, how did you get where you are? And what are the different paths after one finishes a Middle East PhD? Talking to people who are either tenured professors, postdocs, adjuncts, publishers, librarians, or think tank consultants, hoping to bring forth the types of conversations which we wish we had heard from people earlier in our academic careers. And how to get at that wasta. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we're happy to welcome Asif Ashraf. Asif is a university lecturer in Eastern Islamic lands and the Persian-speaking world at the University of Cambridge. He graduated with a PhD in the History Department from Yale University in 2016 and worked as a postdoc fellow at Bryn Mawr College before moving on to Cambridge. His research focuses on 18th and 19th century Iran, state-society relations, and the construction of political authority in Qajar, Iran. Uh, Dr. Ashraf, thank you very much for being here with us today. Um, I guess we wanted to start off by learning a little bit more about your academic journey, if you could describe that for us. Yeah, how did you get to where you are, essentially? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't want to give you the long version of the story. because Short could... version's good. Short version, yeah, I'll give you the short version. So I, I studied uh, Middle Eastern and Islamic studies as an undergrad at NYU. I majored in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. Uh, I, and while I was there, I studied both Arabic and Persian. Um, after I graduated, uh, oh, I should add that while I was at NYU, I think I probably ended up taking more classes, focusing a little bit more on sort of the literature side of Middle Eastern studies. After I, although I did take classes in history and religious studies and politics uh, and some other subjects as well. But I think I, I had a, a, a bit more emphasis on the literature side of things when I was an undergrad. After I graduated, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I ended up applying for jobs in the nonprofit sector and was lucky enough to get a job at Human Rights Watch in New York City, oh, cool. working in their Middle East and North Africa division, which seemed like a great opportunity. I was uh, really excited about it. Um, it was a job that was primarily administrative in nature. I was, you know, basically a, a, a kind of an admin support to the to the researchers in the in the Middle East and North Africa division at Human Rights Watch, but. Um, because of my language skills, I was also able to do a little bit of research kind of assistance work, translating, mostly translating texts from Arabic and Persian to English and vice versa. And so that felt like a, that was a really great opportunity. It was a great experience. Um, I met a lot of talented and sort of dedicated and interesting people while I was there. I worked there for three years. 
um, it kept my toe a little bit in academia in the sense that I was, I felt like I was using some of the skills that I had mm-hmm. learned and acquired in my undergraduate degree. Um, but I felt like I was doing something that was contribute. I don't know, contributing to like the betterment of the world or I don't know, how, <laughs> you know not to be kind of too naive about it. Um, but it was, you know, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed my time there and I met really wonderful people. But then after a couple of years there, I started to think about, well, what was my next step going to be? And I, and I knew I wanted to go to grad school of some kind. And it really kind of boiled down to whether I wanted to go to law school or do a PhD. And ultimately, I decided to do a PhD because I, did, I couldn't envision myself practicing law. Yeah. I kind of just basically stumbled into applying to PhD programs. It wasn't it wasn't like a strategic move on my part. Uh, I feel like I kind of, I just had this kind of gut feeling that maybe that was something that I would enjoy doing. I applied to PhD programs in history departments primarily, even though I didn't have this kind of history background per se, but I, I kind of, again, had a kind of a gut feeling that I would do well in, in history programs. And I also had an idea of the types of scholars that I wanted to work with, the potential supervisors, uh, dissertation supervisors. So I applied and was admitted to the Yale history department. Again, I think I kind of, I don't know, I like looking back in hindsight, I'm not really sure how I was admitted. Um, (laughs) I I think I got really lucky um, and started grad school at Yale, not really knowing what my project was going to be. I, I knew I wanted to work on 19th century Iranian history, but beyond that, I was pretty vague. Did you have any thinking about like where where this PhD would lead to? Like just like going with the flow? Again, very vague, like very vague notions. I, I kind of, I had a few professors at NYU whom I really admired and whom I really looked up to. And I had, a, I think a really kind of profound influence on me. And I kind of had this notion like, oh, I, I think it would be nice to be a professor like Professor X at NYU. Yeah. Uh, but. I think that my impressions of what it meant to be a professor at that time were, you know, very naive and sort of superficial. It was kind of, I I kind of had this idea of like, oh, you, you do research and you teach. Like I was was like, yeah, basically that's all I knew. Um, And so I applied to PhD programs thinking, oh, it might be nice to be a professor someday, but I didn't, it wasn't, I, I didn't have a clear cut goal beyond that. Like I wasn't, I wasn't striving to attain some concrete uh, goal. Um, I just wanted to finish the PhD and then try getting a job afterwards. <laughs> goals. Um, I'm actually really curious as to like how you stumbled onto your project because it's really compelling. The politics of gift giving. What did that happen like during the PhD? Um, yeah. Tell us maybe a little bit more. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So again, when I started at Yale, I didn't I didn't have a concrete idea for a project. Again, I just knew that I wanted to work on the Hajar period and uh, on the 19th century, on 19th century Iran. And it wasn't until I started preparing for my for my comprehensive exams and the oral exams in my third year that I really began to narrow it down. Um, and you know, in the history department at at Yale, we had to read kind of pretty widely um, in preparation for those exams. And in one of the fields that I had for my exams, which was on you know, Iranian history from the Safavid period to the to the Islamic Republic, 
I basically read, I think, almost everything that had been written, at least monographs and, and book-length studies on Iranian history. And I kind of zeroed in on this period of the late 18th and early 19th century as a time period in Iranian history that had been generally overlooked. So the first step was, okay, I think there's something here in terms of the time period where I can perhaps contribute something new because there hasn't been much written on this time period, it seems, based on the reading that I'm doing. Um, so I identified the early 19, the late 18th and early 19th century as a time period that I want to focus on uh, through the process of preparing for my exams. And then it was when I went and did my archival research that I kind of narrowed it down even further and decided that I wanted to do something on the formation of the Qajar state, the, the, the emergence of the Qajar state. But I knew that I didn't want to write kind of an old fashioned political history. Um, I, I wanted to do something new and I kind of, I fumbled about, I think a little bit in, in terms of finding kind of my angle, my, my, my intervention. And I think it just like kind of clicked one day. I came across all these, I was coming across all these references to gifts that had been exchanged between the Qajars and the British and the Qajars and the French in the early 19th century between these diplomatic missions. And I was like, huh, well, there might be something about gift giving that is kind of interesting. And so I started looking for evidence of gift giving kind of internally within Iran, uh, domestically between kind of social, you know, pe people giving gifts to the Qajars uh, in Iran. And, and I found a lot of evidence for it. And so I kind of ran with it. And then that ended up being kind of one aspect, the, the, the part about gift giving ended up being kind of one aspect of a, of a slightly broader project about the formation of Qajar Iran through the lens of these social and economic practices, practices like gift giving. Mm -hmm. It was a process by which I came to the topic. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I had in mind, even going to do the research. I didn't know that that's what I would end up finding and that's what I would end up writing about. So how do you, so you have this project, you finally find sort of your niche of sort of what you want to contribute and you're coming to the end of your PhD. How do you then start to prepare getting this project, finishing the PhD and going into the job market? So what, what kind of things were you thinking about to sort of prep yourself for this sort of ominous job market? that there's no sort of clear vision of what the exact route is. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most important advice I received when I was starting to near the end of the PhD and started thinking about the job market and which I will relay on now is that the most important part of making yourself marketable was to have a dissertation and a done dissertation is better than a not done dissertation. So the advice I received was focus on the dissertation, write the, the dissertation and the job stuff will come. That's very easy advice to give, uh, <laughs> um, but it's much harder to sort of go through the experience of simultaneously trying to finish your dissertation while at the same time applying for jobs. Uh, jobs that seem to be either very difficult to get or 
are dwindling in number. Um, but the most important part of the PhD is finishing the dissertation. You can't get a job without finishing the dissertation. Um, I mean, you can get a job without getting without finishing a dissertation. But if you get if you're offered a job, then the job will want you to have fin to finish the dissertation before you start. So you know, you this was kind of drilled into me like focus on focus on the writing. Just do the writing, do the writing. But then beyond that, I mean, the other thing that helped, I guess, I don't know if that's the right word, but the other thing that helped was actually do having the experience of going through the job market. There's no other, there's no, there's no shortcut to learning the tricks of the job market aside from like having to do it and going out and doing it um, in terms of, you know, getting what, what it is, um, what what are the what are the things that jobs are looking for? You won't really know until you go out there and start applying for the jobs and interviewing. Um, what what kinds of documents are necessary? What what does a cover what does a good cover letter look like? You can ask colleagues, but really you have to like write the cover letter before you have an idea of what a good cover letter is. And the same with other documents. It, just, it was just kind of doing it um, and asking and asking my colleagues and slightly older colleagues people graduate people who had graduated maybe a couple of years before me and who had gone through the job market as well as young kind of early career faculty for advice and for tips on how you know how to put together and how to write documents and sort of what the best practices are i mean i i i really asked a lot of questions and, and turned to a lot of people for advice so that helped as well you know like this process in some ways is very um, based on the particular moment that you're applying and like with the particular institutions that you're applying to and your network, like, is there no kind of secret sauce in some ways? Like, is everything really subjective? I don't think everything is subjective, I, but I don't, I'm not sure that there are any secrets. I mean, I think, I, I think that there are certain things that probably most institutions are looking for, you know, a strong cover letter, a strong CV, uh, a person who can give a decent job talk, who can teach reasonably well. Like these are things that I think all institutions are looking for. What, what is variable, what, what, what changes is the emphasis that's given to one or more of these different components of your job application depending on the institution depending on the university or the college different institutions will emphasize different things some some institutions put a lot more emphasis on research but then some institutions put a lot more emphasis on teaching and that that just really depends on 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 the school it really depends on the department and you have to sort of figure out how to navigate that and how to market yourself to those different audiences well um yeah, I, but I don't think that there's any secret to doing. I don't. I mean, yeah, I don't think that there's a real secret. Did you consciously? So obviously, the prep of making a good dissertation and good research, but at the same time, did you consciously try to craft experiences for yourself to get teaching experience? So there's going to be two different things that, broadly speaking, that search committees are looking for via research or teaching heavy focus in theory. So were there ways in which you tried to improve, you know, you said you have to have a good CV. So how do you, what are, yeah. what are, what are the controllable factors that are manageable and not just like putting all your eggs in one basket that. Right. Yeah. 
I, I so I, I should you know preface by saying that I, I, I have been I, I've been very lucky. I've been very fortunate um, because that's another element to the job market that is way beyond anyone's control. It's just it's just kind of dumb luck and uh, things falling into place. But you're right that there are some things that are under your control and you can manage. I mean, one obviously the most important, the most obvious uh, part that you can control is your dissertation and your research and, and you know your, your writing. So that's one obvious element. Teaching, I think teaching experience is important. And in hindsight, I can now say, I'm not sure I knew this at the time, but in hindsight, I can say that having teaching experience definitely helps, especially if you're interested in teaching uh, at a, a public university, or if you're interested in teaching in a small liberal arts college, those types of institutions will look and will ask you about your teaching experience. Sometimes they will even ask you to teach a uh, 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 like a sample class during your job, uh, during your uh, campus visit. And again, in hindsight, I can say that some of the experiences I had, namely the year that I taught at Central Connecticut State University while I was finishing up my dissertation, proved invaluable when I went out on the job market again the following year. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I didn't apply, I didn't like take this the CCSU job. I didn't even go looking for the for the job that ended up with the CCSU position, thinking, oh, it would be good if I <laughs> had some more teaching experience. Like I wasn't strategic about it. I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. um, but now that I've done that, I can look back and say, you know what, actually, that was quite an important experience. And I can say that I kind of cut my teeth teaching at a public university uh, that was much different than the type, you know, that had students that were much different than the type of students that were at Yale University, where I did my PhD. Um, and so when I went on the job market again the following year, I could tell jobs, well, look, I actually have this breadth of experience. I, I'm, I don't only have this experience of teaching at an R1, you know, Ivy League institution, but I've actually taught at a public university. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that really, that did, that did really, that did really help. So, yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can have, if you can add to your teaching experiences, I would encourage I would encourage people to to do more teaching, but you know that has to be that that there has to be a balance that's struck because yeah. at the end of the day, you really do have to finish your dissertation. Yeah. You don't want the you don't want your teaching to take away from finishing finishing the dissertation. I feel like Asif is telling us to just write. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't put up your writing. Asif saying, "Don't do a podcast." <laughs> Well, no, I mean, all these things are important. I mean, the other thing that's important, uh, I think you alluded to earlier, is having a network um, of scholars and, and building a network of a community of people that you are um, engaging with sort of at an intellectual level, but also that you know and who, that are your colleagues and maybe perhaps even your friends and um, who can you know write letters of recommendation for you and who can testify to the fact that you are a good person and you are, would be a wonderful colleague to have. That's all important too. Um, and again, I wanna go back to this point that, I mean, luck is such, is such an important part of it too. Like you could be, you can write the most fantastic dissertation and like cutting, cutting edge research that changes your field and still not really end up with a great job or a job at all. And I know people 
that that has happened to. So it's not like a magic bullet to just mm -hmm. write, 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 and to write a fantastic dissertation. That's not going to necessarily land you a job. There's, there are these other, there are these other factors at play, and one of them is definitely luck. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt, and I have been, and I and I've been really fortunate uh, in that sense. So, so can you tell us a little about sort of later on the experience? Um, so you got you got this job at uh, Cambridge, and so what is the UK job market experience like compared to what you had experienced in the US? Um, yeah, I mean, in many ways they're very similar uh, in terms of you know like the types of documents that they're looking for, the cover letter, the teaching statement, the research statement, uh, the CV. All that stuff is pretty transferable between the US and the UK. Um, so the application didn't look different. What does look different is the campus visit. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the most part, in my experience, and I've had campus visits at three universities in Britain, uh, and at all of them, uh, the, the sort of the structure was basically the same. You know, you, they do invite you for a campus visit as they do in the U.S., but the, the main difference, or there's a couple, there's a, there's a couple main differences. One is that the job talk is shorter than the job talk in the U.S. In the U.S., job talks are usually about 45, 40 to 45 minutes of you giving a, a talk, a lecture, followed by about 30 to 45 minutes of questions from the audience. So it's, it's like an hour and a half um, thing that you have to do. In the U.K., it's much shorter it's usually you have about 30 minutes to talk about your research and teaching. Um, and usually that's even condensed even further. What they mean is that you have 20 minutes and then 10 minutes of question and answer. Mm -hmm. So it's really compressed. You, and yet you have to be kind of really, you kind of have to really boil down your research to almost bullet points. I mean, I don't want to be kind of like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to be crude about it, but really it's like you kind of really have to boil it down. And the reason why it's so much shorter in the UK than in the US. And this leads me to the second big difference mm -hmm. in terms of the job, the campus visit between the UK and the US is that in the UK, they bring all of the finalists in together and you all are interviewing on the same day. So you meet, you meet, you meet your competitors for the job um, uh, during the campus visit. Whereas in the US, you know, you go to the campus to visit and it's just you who's being interviewed for that day or that day and a half or whatever the case might be then they bring in the next person a few days later or a week later or whatever the case might be in the uk no every the four or five finalists all come in and they're all interviewed at the same time over the course of a day or two and so they have to kind of squeeze everyone in basically in that day or two and that's why everything is a bit more condensed and shorter um there are some obvious drawbacks to having everyone in at the same time. You see your competitors, but you also, I mean, it, it probably adds a little bit of stress to the process um, because you can, you, you're surrounded by your competition. Mm -hmm. But the advantage to the system in the UK, the, the, the system of bringing everyone in at the same time is that the the in general the applica the, the application and the decision making process tends to be much faster the the turnaround time uh, that universities take in the uk to make their decision as to who they're going to offer the position to is much shorter than in the us 
usually if you're the if you're the front runner if you're the first candidate um for the job they will tell you the day after the interview that they want to offer you the job whereas in the us you could go you could go on for weeks where you don't hear anything back from from the job after you've gone for a campus visit uh, and and that can be that can be stressful in its own way where you're just kind of sitting around waiting to hear from a university so those are the two big differences i would say between the us and the uk the other uh, one other difference i would add one other difference in my experience with the uk system is that the search committees in the uk tend to be a bit larger um so like for instance at cambridge the search committee was comprised of academics from my faculty the faculty of asian and middle eastern studies but then there were also administrator university administrators who sat on the committee uh who had decision making power so when i was interviewed there were probably i can't remember exactly the number but there were probably about nine or 10 people in the room who were interviewing me oh wow so whereas in the us there's probably usually about three or four people on the search committee i was wondering about do you have any interesting or odd stories from all these sort of campus visits that you have done in the, during the course of the job search? Or like, especially in the British system, like, did you have to like intimidate your competition? <laughs> no, I mean, that's not really my style. I mean, actually I found the whole experience in the UK to be much more pleasant than the experience in the U S because it is, it is much more transparent in my opinion. Uh, it's in the U.S. in the U.S. Uh, system. You don't know who your competition is unless you hear about it through the grapevine. You know, mm -hmm. the, the rumor mill that is academia. Um, but in the U.K., you you see, it's like very clear. Okay, these are the people who are also being considered for this job. Most of them you end up knowing anyway because it's like you know these are we we all operate in relatively small fields. Yeah. And I was lucky that for the most part, these were people that I was friends with, or at least friendly with, mm -hmm. um, you know, if any of us got the job, I would be happy. I mean, of course I wanted the job. I feel like it's much more transparent and it's, it's, it's a bit more humane actually, I think, uh, to, to know what is going on rather than be left in this state of limbo for weeks uh not knowing what is going on um so no i didn't feel like this scent i didn't feel i mean you definitely i mean i did have i did feel like okay you know i have to bring my a game so because i know who these people are and i know what their strengths are so i need to i i i could tell what 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 is what is it that i bring to the table that perhaps is different from some of the other people who are being considered for the job yeah so it brought out a little bit of a competitive edge in me but i tried not to be like nasty about it. I don't think I was nasty. <laughs> um, and in terms of other unusuals, I mean, you know, yeah, you, there are there are horror stories and there are you know difficult moments that I experienced in the job market. Some of which I think it's better, probably better not to share. Uh, <laughs> fair. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I can't actually think of anything that's like too bizarre or too too crazy. I don't know. That's probably not a satisfying answer, but that's, that's the truth. So no, that's um, yeah. helpful for us. I guess I'm also curious about um, sort of what limbo looks like and more along the lines of like postdocs, because I have very, that's what I think of what postdocs are, but postdocs are obviously very helpful. And like, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about like 
how your experience at Bryn Mawr like helped and like how is it different and like mm-hmm. what should we be thinking about you know I'm I mean I'm thinking of the long durée because I'm a first year but um yeah. you know like keeping an eye out to that like what are the good things about a postdoc and um you know how do we look for those so there's so many different types. I mean, the, the thing is that there's so many different types of postdocs. Um, some postdocs only require you to do research and you're given all this time and money to, to do your research, whether that's to continue with your doctoral project and turn, uh, revising your dissertation and preparing it for publication, or whether that's to begin starting a, a work on a second uh, project. Um, so there are those types of postdocs, which are research kind of heavy postdocs. And here I'm thinking of kind of basically the Society of Fellows postdocs or the junior research fellow fellowships at Oxford and Cambridge, where you really are not, you don't have to teach for the most part if you don't want to, or if you do have to teach, it's, it's very light teaching load. And then there are other postdocs that do require you to teach, usually less of a teaching load than you know, a permanent tenure track faculty member, but still have to teach. And Bryn Mawr was a little bit more on that end of the spectrum where I had ample time to do my research, but I was also teaching one class per semester. And that was a great experience. I mean, again, I I didn't go looking for postdocs per se. I wasn't thinking like I, I would like to have a postdoc this year as opposed to a tenure track job. I mean, I would have preferred having a tenure track there but I ended up being offered the postdoc. But in, in again, in hindsight, I can see how that experience benefited me um, because first of all, it gave me a little bit of time to do a little bit more research and writing while at the same time getting a little bit more teaching experience. And what was great about Bryn Mawr was that it being a small liberal arts college, it gave me a different type of experience yet again than Yale or even Central Connecticut State University. Mm. Um, so now I had under my belt a little bit of experience teaching in a small liberal arts college and the students at, the small, at small liberal arts colleges tend to be a little bit different than the students that are at a public university or at an R1 private university. And so again, when I went back on the job market <laughs> after my time at Bryn Mawr, I could say, well, look, now I have teaching, I have taught kind of the, 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 the full spectrum of types of universities and colleges that one can teach at uh, in the US. Um, and that was, that, was, uh, that was really, I think, uh, helpful. And then of course, the fact that my colleagues in, at Bryn Mawr were so wonderful and they were very supportive and they gave me the time to do my own work and they gave me opportunities to present my work at, at Bryn Mawr. Um, that, that was obviously, that was obviously great as well um yeah and, and and it just gave me a little bit of time it was kind of a cushion uh in terms of time where i had and where i could kind of work on my writing work on my um book manuscript work on journal articles and then put myself back out there on the job market in, in a stronger position potentially to 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 apply for more permanent jobs do you have any <laughs> final words of encouragement or or sort of a core piece of advice well so am i am i correct in understanding that this podcast is intended for student for graduate students who work kind of on the middle east um 
generally, you know, yes. broad, broadly defined? Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I think the grad, uh, it you is know, for because us. every, is every field is different, um, but at least in terms of Middle East studies, I guess my word of encouragement would be that compared to some other fields and subjects, we're doing okay in terms of numbers of jobs. I, I mean, it's not one, it's not great, but it's not, we're not in as dire straits as some other, some other uh, fields. So one, I think should take a little bit of hope that there are jobs. Like I, I actually looked uh, uh, at the American Historical Association's job report for this year, the AHA's job report for this year, according to which there were 24 jobs uh, in Middle East history this year, which is a slight uptick from last year when there were 19 jobs. Over the past five years, numbers of jobs have been have ranged roughly between 20 and 30 jobs, and I presume those are accurate. Those are good. You know, those, that, that, that actually reflects the job market. I don't I don't know, but that's based on this job report that the AHA put out, and that's not bad. I mean, there are other fields where you're talking about just a handful of jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I guess my word of encouragement, my word of advice would be hang in there. Uh, there, there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And, and the other, and the other thing I would say is that we need more, we need more historians of the Middle East. We need more scholars of the Middle East. And so, um, I think it's important for, for young up and coming scholars to, to keep at it and to sort of, you know, hang in there because I think it's important. I think it's actually really important for the world that we live in. I mean, that, that sounds super naive and kind of <laughs> uh, silly, but I really think it's important. Uh, and we need we need young, fresh, interesting people from different backgrounds and different perspectives uh, in our field. And the more, the merrier. I think that's my word of encouragement. <laughs> I think that's a great way to you know, end this episode with a note of positivity. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Dr. You're welcome. Yep. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for asking me. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to talk to you guys. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our guest, Asif Ashraf. And if you're interested in telling your story and experience with the Middle East job market, please email us at projectwasta at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at Project Wasta and Facebook, which is Project Wasta Podcast.